Choosing joy. It's really the way to go and to live life. And we just want to welcome you here to Crosstown. And speaking of joy, I hope you had fun with us last week. We did this great time at our trunk retreat, and it was amazing. And I began to realize, um, as we started looking at the photos, there was a lot of dancing going on. I know there was... There was pounds of cough, of candy being handed out, but there was a lot of dancing going on. So, you know, joy is one of those things. It's a perspective. It's the way that we live our lives. It's the way that we think, and, and we have to make a choice for it. Let me just remind you, if you don't have our app yet, you can download today's notes. Just go to your app store, whatever um, platform you're using, and just type in Crosstown. You can download the app right now, and also you can see the notes that I'll be going through, and you'll be able to download those every week. But the Apostle Paul is really speaking to us about how we face adversity in the world and how we deal with difficult things. And I think we would say that we're in a pretty good place where we need to rethink some of the ways that we look at life. And so when Paul's in prison, he, he develops this thing called joy. He develops a perspective. And he just develops his strength in how he faces the adversity of his life. And writing to some of his friends in Philippians, he writes this. He says, I thank my God always, because being thankful is a real big component of surviving adversity. He says, I always offer prayer with joy, because joy is that powerful component. In every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel until now, and I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete that day until Christ Jesus. Thankfulness, joy, confidence, these are part of the components that enabled Paul to face the adversity that he was challenged with in his own personal life. So last week, we, we, used, uh, we looked into the world of science, and we looked at how it works in biology, and, and we kind of wanted to get some sort of scientific perspective of how joy works. And we took a look at how trees are designed and, and how they are constructed to be able to push back against the adversity of storms. And what we learned about it was that it created these words that we that we rise up with the grace of God, that we are built robust in the word of God, and then we live resilient with joy. That living with this risen grace in us does something to our lives. It raises us up in the middle of adversity. Being built with robust in the word of God, the more that we are strengthened in the core, or the trunk of who we are, the ability we have to kind of hold off the adversities of the winds and the trials and the things that face us in life. And, and that resilience, that joy, is the ability to spring back like the famous palmetto tree. The ability to allow things to bounce off of you or to spring back after the storm has passed. And this is such a critical thing for each and every one of us to have. And joy is that resilience. It's that spring back in the middle of difficult times. But today we're not going to be looking at science. We're, going to, we're actually going to step into the artistic world. And we're going to be talking about the art of joy. I don't know, um, if you've been to any amount of college, you might have taken uh, like an art appreciation or an art history course. You know, I think it, everybody does that like their first time in. And, and most people take it, particularly jocks will take it because it's just an easy credit that can boost up your GPA and you just kind of get through it, nobody's really interested. Well, I hate to say, but it was like the only class that I was interested in college was art history. I mean, I, finding out some of the philosophy and the ideas that, that go into art and the, and the progression of art, 
And one of the things that I learned in art history was the different developments of style, but often methodology, and also philosophy of art. Why things were drawn a certain way or were developed a certain kind of way. And one of the most significant developments that happened right at the beginning of the Renaissance period was this thing called the linear perspective. Now, you're familiar with it, and you've probably done some of these projects in, in junior high where you had to use vantage points and you had to use um, a lot of these line segments and you had to use our horizon and you'd make this painting and, or you'd do this drawing. But as a result of this, you would have the ability to kind of simulate or cr create a real space in a two-dimensional drawing. You'd give this idea that there was, there was depth to the particular drawing. But you know, as I was looking at this linear perspective, this uh, linear method, um, there's a whole idea and a philosophy of how it got developed and how it got put in place that, that I really think touches on the issue of joy and how we look at things. So if I could take you for just a few minutes back to your art history class 101, and we're going to learn a little bit, not just about the technique, but the reasons and the philosophy behind this methodology of drawing. Let's watch. So this is a video about the elements of linear perspective with a little bit of history thrown in. I love linear perspective. It's hard not to love linear perspective. It's like this magic formula. Well, look what even Paolo Uccello was able to do just a few decades after linear perspective was first discovered. So linear perspective is a way of recreating the three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional surface, and it's really accurate. So let's give a little bit of historical background, and then we'll talk about how it's done. Okay, so let's start first with what the problem was. Okay, so here we have a painting from the early 1300s by an artist named Duccio, who's painting at Siena, and you can see that Duccio's interested in creating an earthly space for his figure of the angel Gabriel and Mary, but that the space doesn't really make sense. Okay, so what you're saying is that we have a kind of a real room here. We can see the beams in the ceiling, we can see the architecture, we can see the doors. And so he's really interested in putting these figures in a real place. The problem is, and by the way, don't get me wrong, I love Duccio, but the problem is, is that Duccio is not constructing that architectural space in a way that looks logical to our eye. And I think, you know, it probably wasn't a problem for Duccio, but it was a problem for artists about 100 years later who had a different goal. And their goal was a kind of really accurate realism on that flat surface. Okay, but before we leave the Duccio, let's spend just a moment being kind of unfair and finding what's wrong. Okay. okay so for one thing, the beams of the ceiling right up here don't agree spatially with the seat that the Virgin Mary is on or with this little stand for the Bible that we see here, or for that matter, with the lines that are constructed by the top of the capitals of these pilasters. So none of this is really making sense. Right, it's not a rational space. And there's this increasing interest in the 1400s in rationalism. That's the period that we really call the Renaissance. Right, the early Renaissance. And so in Florence in 1420, Brunelleschi, and let's put up a picture of Brunelleschi. Okay, so he's right here, Filippo Brunelleschi. And he discovers, or some would say rediscovers, because some think that maybe the ancient Greeks and Romans had this before, but he discovers linear perspective. 
So he was a genius. He was a Renaissance man. He was an architect. He was an engineer. He was a sculptor. And according to tradition, he had gone down to Rome and he was studying ancient Roman buildings, ruins, and he wanted to be able to sketch them accurately. And he developed this system, linear perspective, as a way of doing that. Okay, so here is Leonardo's Last Supper. Immediately, the interesting thing is that after Brunelleschi discovers linear perspective, artists like Masaccio begin to use it, but they realize that in addition to creating an illusion of space, it has a way of bringing the viewer's attention to the vanishing point. So artists begin to use it not just to create that illusion, but they begin to use it expressively. And that's what we really see here with Leonardo. So not only is Leonardo creating this beautiful perspectival space, but he's also focusing our attention on Jesus Christ at the center, who is the vanishing point. Right. It brings our eye, our attention to the divine. So here we see Leonardo's Last Supper, and we can certainly just intuitively make out the orthogonals and the vanishing point. But let's go down and really look at the diagram. Okay, here we are. So it's interesting, their eye level all across is basically at the horizon line, and of course we see the vanishing point, the point where all of the orthogonals intersect, which is right here. And so we have all of these lines that are moving across this, this, the surface of this wall, and they're all bringing our eye right to Jesus Christ in the center. And those lines are orthogonal lines. And there you have it. That's linear, how it works. Linear perspective. Well, you may not have been as excited about hearing that, that but what I, what I think was so interesting is they used this idea of nonsensical space, that when the earlier painters were painting, things didn't line up in the spaces correctly until, like, the Renaissance came along. And I think it's so important for us today is because when we're looking at the world around us, we're seeing a lot of nonsensical spaces. We're looking at things from a particular kind of way and they just don't make sense. Particularly if there's a God involved and particularly if there's something good going on in the world around us. And so a lot of us have created an environment around us where we're living in an irrational space. And we need to begin to add a focal point, a horizon, we need to begin to think about the lines that are flowing into our lives to develop a rational space, a space that makes sense, the one that has meaning and, and one that has incredible purpose. Because sometimes life just doesn't look like a rational space. I mean, we look at what's going on in Washington. It doesn't seem to be anything rational going on, regardless of what side of the, the aisle you're on. Uh, we look at the world around us. We look at the challenges that we have in our own personal lives. Sometimes the spaces just don't look rational. We look at this person that we married when we were younger and the arguments that we're having and the fights that we may be having or the work that we've done saving our money and seeing it all disappear. And we begin to look and say, is there any rationality in the space that I'm living? Does anything make sense anymore? So Paul was living a life where he found himself arrested, he found himself um, chained to a guard in the cellar of Rome and, and waiting his execution. And it would have been easy for him to begin, after walking with God, to begin to think that this is an irrational space. This is nonsensical. 
My senses can't fit into the way that my life is working out. There's, there's no, no rational understanding of it. But he begins to take a, a, a linear perspective approach to how to view life. He begins to draw a vantage point. And he begins to create a horizon, and then he begins to lead all of his conversations as these lines going back to the vantage point. And every conversation he has from this point on begins to go back to this vantage point. And what it does, it begins to create rational space. It begins to make a sensible space as opposed to a non-sensible space. So I like it. He's, it's very much like Da Vinci's Last Supper with all the, the lines that were leading to the center of Christ. In the midst of adversity, his vantage point becomes his relationship with Christ. And so everything begins to lead there. So I want you to listen to some of his artistic depth and how he does this thing called the art of joy. He begins to choose joy by first establishing where his vantage point's going to be, what he's going to focus on, what's going to be eye level, his horizon, and then he's going to begin to look at every aspect of his life, and it's all going to lead to this vantage point. So, let's take a look at a couple. When facing events that he couldn't control, which would be nonsensical in a flat world, in Philippians 1.6, he says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of, of Christ Jesus. He's like, okay, this all doesn't look like it's working out, but okay, that would be based upon an evaluation of today and only today. But he draws a line all the way to this other point is the day of Christ Jesus. And he draws that line and begins to draw this room or this rational space that I don't need to be depressed when I can't control things because now I've created a rational space called hope. And I can now step into this space instead of just looking at the world as a flat surface and not seeing myself in it. It's an incredible thing that he does, just like um, an artist would. When facing circumstances that give rise to fear, and that would happen with us as well, Listen to what he does in Philippians 1.12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. See, the flat image would be this. I mean, this that goes nowhere would be just looking at my circumstances. And we do that a lot. We just sit and we look at the circumstance. And we see that it doesn't make any sense. And if God is good, and if God loves me, why does he allow these things to happen to my life? But the Apostle Paul said, okay, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in prison. I know I, I'm in a situation that could give rise to fear. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start drawing some lines. And I'm going to start attaching them to something. Something significant. Something that creates space. Something that creates purpose and meaning. He says that my circumstances have turned out, that's the travel along into the depth, for the greater progress of the gospel. See, he begins to look that maybe some adversities that we experience in life have a deeper meaning to them. Maybe they don't just suck. Okay? I mean, seriously. Life sucks is a phrase that has no linear perspective. 
All it does is see this flat picture of a non-rational space, and it goes nowhere. So think about the times when you use the phrase, you know, this really sucks. That maybe this is an opportunity for you to redraw your vantage point and say, listen, am I really centered on what God's doing? And begin to draw the lines out of that bad experience or that bad moment and begin to discover the depth and the meaning and the, and the rationale of God in the middle of the difficult time. When faced with the opposition of others, because not everybody was on, ball, on board with Paul. Not everybody loved what Paul was doing, and, and not even everybody that was doing what Paul was doing was in agreement with Paul. So there were people out there that were, were attacking his preaching, people who were preachers who were attacking his preaching. So how would you normally respond to that kind of opposition if it came from inside your family? If it came from coworkers, or if it came from someone that you loved or that was around you. Well, listen to how he deals with it specifically in his situation. Philippians 1.15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. You know, some are doing it for the wrong reason. But some are doing it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. I mean, there's some ugly folks out there that are just going to do it because they're selfish. They are going to attack your motives. They're going to attack what you're about. And they're just, that's just what they're after. And Paul said, some, some are with us and, and are walking with us in our lives and helping us and joining us in the message of what we're doing. And he said, and then some are out there, they're kind of like doing it for their own reasons. And they've got motives that, that are not pure, thinking that it would cause me distress or imprisonment. Do you have at least one person out there that just makes your life imprisoned? I mean, if you don't have one person that makes your life hard, then you're probably hiding in a bubble someplace. Okay, I mean, really, you probably, you probably have stopped daring to do something good or something right. But he says, listen, there are some folks out there that their only desire is that I end up in prison and I remain here. So he says, what then? What do you do in this situation then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. It's like, what? Dude, they're, doing, they're just attacking you. What are you going to do? Paul, what are you, you going to do? They're, they're talking bad about you. And, and, you know, and he's like, hey, I'm not going to fight that fight. He says, as long as Christ is preached, and it's, it is, as long as God's plan, and as I'm looking at his vantage point, his plan is going forward, then I'm just going to rejoice in it. Can you imagine having this kind of perspective? See, I have a get-even kind of perspective. Now, mine's not get even. I, I really don't. That's not my perspective. Maybe you have a get even kind of. I have a make you look stupid perspective. That's what I want to do. I don't want you to suffer. I just want you to look stupid after you've said something to me that's insulted me. So, um, but could you imagine if you took into every relationship, starting with your home, bring it into your family? You know, what do you do when your husband doesn't appreciate you? What do you do when your husband doesn't recognize the things that you've done? What is, what is your immediate reaction? 
Or are you able to take the perspective of Paul because you've centered Christ as your focal point and your vantage point and you, you're keeping your eyes on that. And it's like, listen, whether he appreciates what I'm doing or not, that's not the, that's not the deal. My, my thing is, to, is to, to bring love into this family, keeping it focused on Christ and to create this space where life and love can happen. Can you imagine if you did your job like that? Well, what if you get pay, passed over for the... For the race. What if, what if somebody doesn't give you the appreciation that you deserve? Can you see how the Apostle Paul's like, you know, on face value, you're right. I have every right to be angry at my wife. I have every right to be angry at my coworker. I have every right to choose to not like Republicans or not to like, you know, uh, Democrats. I have every right. But... Since my perspective is neither Republican nor or Democrat because they're not my focal points, but Christ is my focal point, I can begin to add some depth to this experience. I can begin to see purpose and meaning in this experience. It's powerful. And the, and the Apostle Paul was living off of this artistic uh, way of approaching joy when facing something that could kill him, something that could just, I mean, literally kill him. The Apostle Paul looks for perspective. He looks at his vantage point, he draws his line, and he keeps his eye on the horizon. Philippians 1.18, he says, I, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ. And then he drawn his lines with his ruler to the vantage point, And to die is gain. He all of a sudden has depth. You know, the, he's beginning to see the, the depth of life. And, and, and this, is, this is brilliant. This is what art has revealed to us. This is what uh, um, engineering and science now relies on, is beginning to see this depth in life and beginning to draw the lines to this vantage point. I'm willing to bet that if we're in a life of despair, anxiety, or fear, you don't have a vantage point. You're not drawing lines. You're, not, you're just seeing a flat, nonsensical image called just time and space, the moment. When being faced with being self-absorbed in his own life. Because that's a nonsensical space. The Apostle Paul said this. Philippians 2.3. He said, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. And do not merely look on your own interests, but on the interests of others. He, he may now have another vantage point that's been added. He started with the vantage point of Christ, and now this is a second perspective, and that's also in art, where you add another vantage point that's connected to the first vantage point, but the, uh, this new vantage point that adds depth and meaning is others. So we can get really absorbed in our own pain, because it hurts. I mean, that's why we came up with a word for it. We can get really depressed over the circumstances of our lives. And we can get caught in a nonsensical drawing or painting of life. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? When I, I'm having a hard time finding anything good about like, what's going to happen next week. Like, well, I could put it up for this for another week because 
Next week I'm going on vacation or I'm going to be doing some fishing or anything like that. The Apostle Paul, when nobody's caring about him being in shackles and nobody's coming to rescue him, he's like, okay, I need a vantage point. What is it? Well, Christ is my vantage point. I'm going to do a second perspective, add it to this picture. What's it going to be? Others. And when you all of a sudden you add what's going on in other people's lives and being concerned about their concerns, you deepen your picture. Selfishness is the flat plane, the nonsensical plane. But when you begin caring about others, and the Apostle Paul begins to do this, when facing success, because that is also something we have to manage, just as much as pain, just as much as failure, success has to be thought of with a right perspective. Philippians 3, 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And what he's saying is, it's not that they're not valuable, but he's saying, I'm going to put some depth to me as an individual. It's not about my job. It's not about my car. It's not about my physique or my looks or how much money I have or how much, you know, I have succeeded in my personal life. He said, listen, I'm going to put those things kind of in the background, and I'm going to move Christ to the foreground, and I'm going to add some depth to who I am as an individual. Again, focusing on Christ, drawing his lines, and creating a rational space where, you know what, I really am not the most important thing in the world. My success is not the most important thing in the world. You know, it's, and so he begins to put all these things in proper perspective in his life. When facing uncertainty, and this is probably a big one for, for most of us, because there was a lot of uncertainty. He didn't know when they were going to walk into his cell for the last time and lead him out, and then he would have his head cut off, which eventually did happen to him. So in Philippians 4, 6, 7, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. That's one of your lines. That's one of the things. You know, confidence, joy, thanksgiving, hope, these are all things that begin to create a rational space, a place where we really can live, where we really can survive, where we can really experience all God's plan for our lives. He says, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all, all comprehensions, all dimensions will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's like you begin drawing these lines, focusing on Christ, and begin drawing these lines based upon the word of God. He says, that space won't be empty. That space will be filled with the peace of God, which will surpass your linear perspective and understanding of how the world operates. You'll begin to look at things that are nonsensical to other people, and all of a sudden, you'll begin to see some, I can see why God would allow the building to flood three times. I'm not saying God made the building flood three times. I think it was a meteorological event. But, you know, why would God let it happen to us? And, you know, I can see why. I can begin to see some depth. I'm a better pastor. If you were here, I mean, if you've been here at least five years, you've got to admit I'm better than I was. Okay, I mean, come on, you got to give a little bit of breath. I am better than I was. I'm nicer than I was. I'm a little bit more chill about things. You know, I, I, I know what are important now. 
I figured out that you're more important than the building. That's a big one. You know, you're more important about, you know. That growing big is not what we're about, that the quality of care and love for one another and our vantage point of Christ, that that's what life is really about. And you know what? People have begun to look at Crosstown and begin to look what's going on here, and they're like, we're amazed you guys aren't angry. We're amazed you guys grow. We're amazed that, that things are just getting better at that church. Why? Well, because when we flooded, all we could see was water, so we decided to draw our vantage points, put Christ right in the center of it, and we decided to draw all the lines to that, and all of a sudden, something good happened, you know? Yeah, I turned 60 in February, and the, you know what the one thing I asked God, and it's almost a beg, God, if you would just let me live another 5 to 10 to 15 years, I'm just getting good. I mean, I just, I finally figured out what Christianity is about. And guess what it is? I choose joy. You know, I mean, it's like to begin to have the same thoughts of God over in your mind to begin to en enrich you. And then let me just say, if you're over 60, the world's going to try to flatten you. And they're, they're going to try to take your space away. Okay, they're going to try to take your space away, get you out of your job, get you out of the way for the younger folks, and then just get you out of the way and flatten your space, and we'll call it retirement, buy yourself an RV and get on over to Wyoming, you know? Don't you dare let anybody shrink the space of your influence, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going to be like all the other churches growing in town are full of young people. We're going to have like all the 60 and older crowd here across town. You got to go someplace, you know. Uh, but seriously, let's take age out of it. Divorce can shrink your life. Single parenting, been there, done that. It can shrink your life. Dealing with substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, and somebody just wants to flatten you out and say, you're an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, and that's all there is going to be to you. Well, some of that may be kind of something you'll battle with, but don't let anybody flatten your space. Because when you're in Christ and he's your vantage point, you're a child of the living God. You're beloved of God, called of God, chosen of God, heir of God. I mean, the space just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. All this from art history class. Man, and you just thought you were getting two extra bonus credits when you were going through college. You see, people sometimes just see the nonsensical, and that's all they'll, they'll, they'll say. They'll come up to me, if God's so good, then why is the world so hard? Well, I walk out, you know what, you need some more lines. You need a new vantage point, because I'm looking at the exact same world, and, and even Jesus told the disciples, hey, in the world, you will have tribulation, earthquakes, and wars. Just want to let you know it. So don't let them surprise you. But if you don't have the vantage point of Christ, they will always be the things that stop you and make the world nonsensical. People always complain about the nonsensical life of Job. All the deep philosophers, atheistic philosophers, always turn to Job. Well, what about Job? That was kind of a crappy story, wasn't it? And well, if you're not familiar with Job, well, he loses everything. On the flat world, he loses everything. He even loses his children. That's no little thing. But then people 
will begin to say, yeah, but he loses everything. But at the end of the story, he gets all his stuff back again, and he gets some new kids. You hear how stupid that is? See, that's, that's lacking a linear perspective. That, that's, that's a happy now. As long as I get more of my stuff back, and as long as I get, okay, new kids, as long as I, get, as long as, as long as I can make the now happy, I'm okay with that. I don't think that's how Job resolved it. I think Job, when he had those new kids and, he, and he's got all of his stuff back, I think when they were having Thanksgiving dinner and they were all celebrating and having a good time after losing seven other children, um, I think probably while everybody else was going into the pecan pie, there was pr- probably a moment when Job goes to the back porch by himself. And maybe, I, I don't know what he has in his hand, a drink or something, and, and he probably just talks to God and he remembers those seven children. And nobody else knows his pain, but he knows this thing, the Lord giveth and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a, it doesn't say that the Lord giveth and the Lord destroyeth. It means the Lord gave and the Lord took it back. But it is always with the Lord, whether it's given or taken back. And he, and he realized the depth of even loss is even with God. Even that which he had lost was still with him. See, that's the only way that we can make sense out of what would otherwise be a nonsensical world of loss that all of us seem to experience with, with attacks and synagogues and and, and all the different places that it happens throughout this country, and we see the nonsensical, there's got to be something that adds depth to life and meaning to life. You cannot make sense of life if you're just going to try to answer one question. If you're, trying to, if you're not going to move forward with God until you get the answer to why, you're not going to move forward. So many people look at the world and they say, God, why? And they don't get an answer from God. Because that's, the answer why is not how you add depth to the world. The way that you experience depth is by adding Christ to your perspective. And then you can live even without the answer to why, and life still can be rich. In Ephesians, Paul asked God to give us as believers, every one of us, this new perspective. And it listened to the, the art 101 linear perspective language. In Ephesians 3, he says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Vantage point, lines, 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 lines. Everything derives meaning from this Father. That he would grant to you, he prays, to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's Da Vinci's Last Supper. He's, he's creating depth. He's creating a horizon and a vantage point. And he's drawing everything. He says, and I pray 
that when you look at the world and it doesn't look like it makes sense and it looks like your marriage is falling apart and you don't understand what your kids are doing and you're not comfortable with the future of our country and you don't know what you're going to do in the next 10 to 15 years of your life. Paul says, I pray that you will receive understanding from God, that you will see the, the length and the depth and the breadth and the width of what God is doing and that it will be filled with the fullness of God. A life based on happiness is one without perspective. It really is. Happiness has no lines, it's just there. It relies on everything to make sense now, right here. And happiness is when the world, for a brief moment, makes sense to you. And everything in it begins to, it makes you happy. But you'll find yourself quickly transitioned into another experience in life. Also, a life steeped in fear is a lack of depth, of perspective, of vantage point, of God, of, of, of you know, and, and, and whenever we live in fear, it's because everything's flattened down and we no longer have a rich perspective. The art of joy is changing your perspective by making Christ your vantage point. Not just your belief system. Okay, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm Catholic. So what? I'm Protestant. So what? Those can be just flat paradigms. I mean, that's all they could be. Is just, that could just be another flat picture of an angel and the Blessed Virgin like we saw with Ducci, you know. It was just, or Bacci, whatever the guy's name was. I mean, and it's just like, I didn't say I got a good grade in it. I just said I liked it. But we're talking about vantage point. We're talking about perspective. Is Christ your vantage point? See, for Paul, Paul's perspective of joy, of death, produced joy. Man, I'd sure like to get that. Paul's perspective on the commitment of God for his life produced joy. Paul's perspective on others produced joy. So as we're moving into a moment of expressions, Maybe the, the sense to life is gone for you. And you were kind of hoping it would all make sense when somebody answered the question, why? Well, I'm going to tell you. There's a gazillion whys. And you're probably not going to get the answer that's going to change who you are as an individual. I have never seen, and I've been doing this for a long time, I've never seen somebody believe in God or have their life improved because they got the answer why answered that oh that's why all right i'll become a new person then i'll give my stuff away i'll be kind i'll love other people i'll be happy now because i got my one wide answer and that's that's not how it works maybe the fear that you live with can be overcome with a deeper understanding of of life God calls every one of us here to the art of joy. He said this in Hebrews. He said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. God, the original Da Vinci. Fixing our eyes on the vantage point Jesus that the author and the perfecter of faith for who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What a picture has been drawn for us. 
It's like, get your eyes back to Christ. Focus on Him. Make Christ your vantage point. Focus your eyes on His horizon and draw all your paths in His direction. That's the art of joy. The art of joy is a perspective of life that sees beyond the event but embraces the moment. It sees beyond the loss and discovers a gain and sees beyond the past and embraces the promises of God. It adds depth, meaning, hope, and life. Father, we enter into this space that you have created through your grace. And God, today, we focus and restore our eyes on Jesus. You are the author and the finisher. You are the painter and the sculptor of our lives. And we invite into this place, into this space, peace that surpasses all understanding, that surpasses the nonsensical and the fearful and the questions of life. So today, God, we focus on Jesus and we draw all our lines, the path of our marriage, the path of our children, the path of our thoughts, the path of our money, the path of our success, the path of our failures. We draw them all to Christ, that you will create the space called the kingdom of God in our lives. We thank you, Father. Let me invite you to come and receive communion. Enter into a sacred space with God.